It is a beautiful day to be alive, and I'm so glad that we have this time together. I'm Sanaa Laybourne. I am a professor, scholar, connector, and avid reader. I've always loved learning about what's happening in our social world and sharing that knowledge, especially over a good cup of coffee. And so here we are. Each week on Let's Grab Coffee, I catch up with experts from across the country who are investigating our most pressing social issues and common curiosities. Over the next hour, you'll learn about their inspirations, motivations, and of course, what they know about the world around us. Go ahead and grab that cup of coffee and get ready for an engaging and insightful conversation. Since Dr. Kildare first captured TV audiences in 1961, medical dramas have remained one of the most popular TV genres. For me, it was Shonda Rhimes' Grey's Anatomy that completely captured my attention and my imagination. Whether for better or worse, it's shows like these that often shape how we view medicine and understand various illness. Medical dramas and our cultural beliefs portray doctors as superheroes, or at least those who are answering a noble calling. But who's actually behind those medical masks? In his memoir, I Can't Save You, Dr. Anthony Chinqui gives us an intimate look at one doctor's journey into and out of medicine. Dr. Anthony Chinqui is a board-certified otolaryngologist, that's an ear, nose, and throat doctor, y'all, with degrees from Harvard University and Emory University School of Medicine. He's an award-winning storyteller with The Moth and has been on the writing staff of Fox's The Resident and a medical advisor for none other than ABC's Grey's Anatomy. He has published opinions in Forbes and been interviewed by NPR on the topic of systemic racism in medical education. Hi, Tony. Thanks so much for joining us today. Hi, Sana. Thank you so much. It's such a pleasure. Yes. You know, when I saw, first of all, this beautiful cover art on your book and the title, I Can't Save You, it already gave me some vibes, right, on what might be in these pages. And then when I read the synopsis about your journey into medicine, but also your journey into yourself, um, I was like, oh. I have to see if he'll come on and talk to me about this absolutely beautiful memoir that you have written. Well, thank you so much for just picking it up. Um, that's so great. Um, and I'm so happy to be here. Um, I'm so excited to talk about any and all parts of it. I mean, it's 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 so weird getting into interviews and whoever I'm talking to already knows most of the intimate details of my life. So um, yeah, I'm happy to uh, to get into it because my life is an open book, clearly, because you've read it. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you know, it is a little bit unfair because as a reader, I know a lot of intimate details about your life, but you know very little. <laughs> about mine. So it's a little bit unfair, but hopefully throughout this conversation, um, we'll get to know each other a little bit better. The listeners will get to know a little bit about, I guess, both of us better and then pick up the book to, to find out even more of the juicy details because we don't want to give too much of the book away. But of course, I want to talk about some of the, the bigger themes in the book. Um, and I have to say, you know, I love the book. I actually had a a, I don't want to say love-hate relationship with the book, but um, I thought you did such an excellent job of really eliciting a lot of emotions um, in the reader, in me as a reader. So there are times in the book where I was like, oh, who is this guy? What, <laughs> what's his deal? 
Um, but then also throughout the book, really empathizing um, with you and and learning more, not just about the, the field of medicine, but also, of course, your own experience. And so um, I'm always just so in awe of writers when they're able to take me on that emotional journey where I'm having those reactions of like, oh, I can't believe this. Is, I can't believe this guy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, that is, I mean... That sort of love-hate relationship, that makes me so happy to hear, honestly, um, because it was very intentional that I, as the author, took you on that sort of journey because I wanted to write the story, which is, um, at the end of the day, it's a story about growing up. You know, it's a story, it's a coming-of-age story. Um, it's just the coming-of-age segment takes place, you know, during these times when I'm training in medicine and I'm supposed to be of age already because of what I'm asked to do every day. Mm -hmm. But that's the reality for a lot of us in training. Uh, it's that um, a lot of us are emotionally, we're still very much adolescents mm -hmm. and we're, we have all this responsibility put on us and it's anything that we haven't taken the time to navigate or, or deal with um, any defenses we had against uh, letting those things out get stripped away because of how much we're working, how little we're sleeping, whatever we're doing to kind of make it through each day. And so I really wanted to put the reader in the shoes of someone watching someone grow up. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I really, you know, from the time I, I thought about how to put this book together, um, I was like, all right, well, I need to write this uh as if I'm in the mindset of myself, you know, 10, 15 years ago. And um, that was, that wasn't too hard, but I was just, you know, I had to come to terms with the fact that, hey, you know, the readers may not like me for large portions of this book, but hopefully I've given them enough to want to see if I get better, you mm -hmm. know? Um, so I'm so glad that it was effective in that way for you because yeah, it was it was really important to me to bring the the reader along for that sort of ride. Mm -hmm. And I, I was definitely along for the ride, and there are many twists and turns along the way, and it is a very entertaining read as well. Um, but yes, there were points. And to your credit, as a as a writer, right, there are points where I was like, I cannot believe that he did this <laughs> or said this. And but it brought me it did bring me along that journey, right, to watching you develop um, as a person and, and, and thinking through, you know, the type of man you want to be, the type of a father, husband, et cetera. And so I thought it was such a beautiful journey um, to be along. Um, but let's Let's talk a little bit about the meat of this book or what it hinges on, which is that journey through medical school and through your training. Um, I'm wondering if you could just tell us a little bit about that process, just for folks who may not be familiar, so we kind of get a scene, a setting uh, of what was happening in your life at that time. Sure. So the, you know, this is the short version of how do you become a doctor, right? <laughs> so basically, uh, after you go to college, um, where you presumably take pre-med classes. Those are like physics, chemistry, all that stuff everyone, you know, usually wants to forget about. Um, then you take uh, a test to, uh, to help you apply into medical school. And medical school is usually four years. Some people take a little longer if they want to do research during that time, but four years is the usual amount of time. And then after medical school is when you start training uh, in the part or discipline within medicine 
that you ultimately uh, want to be a doctor in. So in medical school, it's all very general. And then you apply to be a, you know, a plastic surgeon, a cardiologist, a emergency room doctor, those sorts of disciplines within medicine. Um, and that time after medical school, the training portion is called residency. And that can range anywhere from, you know, three years to upwards of 10, depending on what you choose to do and how long you want to train. For me, it was five because I was a otolaryngologist, ear, nose, and throat surgeon. And most surgery uh, residencies are five years-ish. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, after that, uh, you're what's known as an attending doctor if you stay in the the academic hospitals or just, you know, you're, you're a grown doctor who can practice, you know, <laughs> you can, you can make some money, you know, presumably, and, you know, you can work without supervision after that. So the whole journey itself, you know, takes a very, very long time. Oh, and during this time, you're not only learning, of course, the skills that you need to know to be a doctor, whatever your your specialty area is, but you're also learning what this field demands of you. And what I was really taken back by was how the job, as you described it, and even the training process really requires you to separate yourself from yourself, or at least that's how I read into it, where you're really compartmentalizing your own personal feelings, where there's this demand that you kind of know everything all the time, that even though you're supposed to be asking questions, you're kind of punished for asking asking questions. And so a very intense um, training period where you're, where I imagine imposter syndrome is very high. Everybody's always been the smartest in their class. So then you don't want to look like you don't know. And um, just all of these pressures compounding, but yet at the same time making, you know, life or death decisions every day, all day. Yeah. Um, Yeah. It's, uh, it's supremely demanding. The only other occupation, you know, when I talk to people about it from all walks of life, the only other occupation that seems to mirror what training demands is the military. Mm. Um, and just how, you know, you're you're the the situations you're you're forced to face when you're you're super young and the demand for excellence or else, mm-hmm. you know, um, or else someone dies. Yeah. You know, that's that it's it's really just so much to put on on folks. And the way we deal with it is really uh individualized because we're not really taught uh extensively how to deal with it. Um doctors in general, you know, the prevailing sentiment over the years has been, you know, you guys just gotta you gotta push on through. It's supposed to be hard, it's supposed to be dirty, it's supposed to be difficult, but you know, it's a calling. And Mm -hmm. so uh, you have to answer. And -hmm. if you want to be a doctor, you just have to put up with the horror that you see every day and just keep going as if nothing is wrong. And, you know, ask any doctor who will be honest with you, and they'll tell you that that's impossible. And, you know, uh, the way that we deal with it, you know, some folks, choose to you know separate themselves from it they feel that that's how they can do their best work is if they take a step back and don't engage with their patients and and the pain that they're going through um so directly um and some folks choose to feel it because it, they feel it makes them better doctors that way um the empathy helps them to connect more which they feel gives 
uh, their their patients better care. And there's no wrong answer to this. Mm-hmm. You know, it's everyone's choice, but it is a choice. And whatever we choose, we still aren't coming away from this scarred, uh, un- unscarred. Right. I mean, um, mm-hmm. this is just, you know, you're choosing how to take your lumps, how to, you know, get traumatized uh, by this world. And it's it's kind of messy. So it's not as it's not as sexy as, as Grey's Anatomy would have you believe. <laughs> Sadly. <laughs> I know. I know. Oh, my goodness. You know, one thing that you say in your book is, um, self-medication for self-preservation that you all through the training process, you know, may people, let me tell you, when you read this book, you might be shocked and appalled to hear some of the things that your doctors are doing. Um, But you describe a lot of drinking alcohol, maybe drugs, sex, et cetera, just a lot of unhealthy behaviors that, you know, we're like doctors, shouldn't y'all know better? Shouldn't y'all know (laughs) of all people not to do these things? (laughs) <laughs> well, that's that's part of the that's part of the problem, isn't it? That most people, including doctors, think that we should know better just because we decided to give our money to med school, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but we're still kids, you know, <laughs> and we're kids who are who are too smart for our own good, and you know, have have been able to succeed because we're super competitive with ourselves and with others, and when that competitiveness reaches its peak Mm -hmm. uh, in residency training. And also, you know, you're starting to see the real world of medicine. Uh, Instead of dealing with your own stuff, you just look for the easiest release because you don't have time to interrogate yourself. You know, you don't have the energy to, to really dig into those things. So the easiest thing is to, you know, drink with your friends. It's, Mm -hmm to you know there's a lot of drinking there's a lot of drug use there's a lot of sex there's a lot of unhealthy behavior that we engage in because it's just the path of least resistance to survival Mm. you know and that's you know as as jarring as it can be for folks who aren't in medicine to see um i think that everyone can relate to that feeling Mm-hmm. Absolutely. You mentioned, you know, engaging in some of these behaviors, which a lot of us do, and we're not in medicine. <laughs> we're not in this high pressure, high stakes job. Uh, you know, this, but you mentioned um, that as being the path of least resistance, right? You want to survive. So what is it that I need to do in order to survive? But at a certain point for, for many of us, we reach that breaking point where we realize survival is not enough or at least the ways I'm surviving is not sustainable. And that's really what you talk about in the book. Um, And I'm wondering if you could share a little bit about how you were able to come to that place of knowing like, wait a minute, this isn't working for me, but also deciding, okay, I want to see what's on the other side of this, because we could always realize like, this isn't sustainable. This doesn't feel good to me, but then still continue to engage in those unhealthy behaviors. Right. And I think for me, you know, it it was kind of my rock bottom point that comes kind of in the middle of the book. And I, I want to do that intentionally, like the arc of the book kind of goes like this, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, for me, uh, this is mini spoiler, but not nothing major, you know, mm-hmm. um, I got to this point in in the middle of training where you know I've been engaging in all the all the stuff all the behaviors that are <laughs> that are not going to help anybody but the reality was that 
I was doing my best to run away from the fact that I was super depressed. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, I'd been depressed. I've had major depressive episodes before in my life, um, but I'd always tried to kind of sweep them away and not really dig into the real reasons why. Mm -hmm. And I realized that my depression was seeping its way out, whether I wanted it to or not. And the, as it, as it tends to do, mm-hmm. and, you know, it was doing so at a time when I was, you know, dealing with a whole lot of pressure at work, you know, in, in relationships that were falling apart, you know, uh, uh, you know, my, my job was just like trying to kick me out. And, you know, there was, there was all sorts of stuff going on. And, um, and also I was having thoughts of hurting myself, mm-hmm. you know, and, and it was, you know, it was during one of those really low moments um, that I miraculously, you know, through the kindness of my family, like stepped away from all of it. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I I walked away from the world for like a, you know, a good few weeks and decided that if I was going to continue, not, not just going back to my job, but if I was going to continue living Mm-hmm. You know, I had to figure out a reason why um, and figure out how to do it. And there were a lot of things, you know, which I know so many of us can relate to that that formed who we were when we were growing up mm-hmm. um, that, you know, it's just so much easier to try to run away from. But if we continue to run for our whole lives, then we never really grow. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, it, it was at that point that I realized, you know, surviving wasn't working for me. Mm. You know, I had to, I, don't, I had to live. I had to, I couldn't just survive anymore. And that required a lot of work on my part. Yeah. Uh, that's so powerful that, that knowing of, I can't just survive. Like I want to live. I want to do more than just simply kind of scrape by and, and try to, you know, numb myself from, from these different thoughts or feelings that might be arising. We'll be right back after a short break. You're listening to Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. You're tuned in to WYXR 91.7 FM. This is Let's Grab Coffee. I'm Sana, and I'm here with Dr. Anthony Chinqui. We're talking about his memoir, I Can't Save You. For me, as I read your book, you know, there are so many different themes um, throughout the book, but that one theme, very big piece about depression, about mental health, um, but also about, you know, support as well, I think is so key and really opening up, I think, a lot of conversations that I see happening maybe more frequently now or openly now now around depression, um, particularly depression for uh, folks of color, for men. uh, And so that's something else that I really appreciate about this book because you give us a very intimate and realistic view of what depression actually can feel like versus what we might see on the outside, but what the person who's experiencing it is actually thinking and feeling. And I think that's very unique and also very important for people to understand like what depression is. Yeah. And I think that was, that was something that was really important to me as I wrote it was that you know, as a culture, we have very little idea of what depression actually is kind of in a day-to-day sense. Mm-hmm. You know, there's so, there are millions of people who think it just means, you know, someone's down in the dumps, mm-hmm. you know, they're just, they're just sad all the time. Um, the reality is 
what depression looks like uh, can vary wildly and can often look like the president, uh, that, not the president, that, that the person is having the time of their life, mm-hmm. you know, that they're, that they're doing great, that they're succeeding, you know, immensely and they're the life of the party and they're just all this sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's how it, that's how sneaky it is. And I wanted to show you know, at least my experience uh, going through it, because I think there might be other folks out there that can relate to the different levels of depression. It's not just that kind of comatose sort of, I can't get out of the bed thing. That's really the end game of, of, of what depression feels like, the lead up and where we can really um, have an impact on our lives and other people's lives. That's the important part. And there's so many, you know, yellow lights along the way that if we knew to look for them, mm-hmm. you know, we might be able to, you know, treat ourselves a little bit better and and save ourselves from the the really dark places. Um, so yeah, that wasn't something that I'd seen that much in print, you know, let alone from medical literature, because that's not how doctors write their books. They they all want to look good at the end of the day and and mm-hmm. seem like superheroes, but <laughs> you know, it's, it's just not true. And I wanted to write something that was honest especially as concerns uh, mental health, because like you said, you know, our communities of color, you know, and also, you know, know, I can speak for black men in particular, you know, these are things that we just don't talk about. And if we want to talk about them, we don't have the vocabulary to talk Mm -hmm. about them. And we don't, we don't understand the issues super well. And so, yeah, I was just hoping to, to make some sort of uh, inroads here with uh, starting the conversations. Mm -hmm. I think you've absolutely done it because again, here you are a doctor, which in our culture is like, oh my goodness, you're a doctor. It seems so amazing and and um, so unattainable for your everyday person, right? So a pinnacle of success in a lot of folks' eyes. And yet you're telling us that in this time where you're supposed to be having, you know, being seen as this, you know, amazing doctor, right? <laughs> that internally you're feeling pretty terrible, you know, um, and dealing with a lot of different issues or even uh, running away from a lot of different issues. And so I think it's powerful to to hear these stories. Um, You know, one thing on this show is I often have therapists on the show, people who are talking about mental health, because it's so important to me personally, um, as someone who, you know, never thought that I'd go to therapy, had a lot of negative uh, misconceptions about what it meant to ask for help, right? And not wanting to be perceived as weak, um, a belief that, oh, I should be able to figure it out, right? We're we're smart people. We should be able to think our way out of this or or figure it out for ourselves. Um, But now understanding and having a therapeutic relationship, understanding how important that has been for me, but then also to your point of, you know, what does depression look like? Depression can look like someone doing their job, excelling at their job, being the life of the party, always, you know, there for a good time. um, you know, it can look like somebody showing up every day and offering motivational inspiration. Um, me, it can look like, you know, it can look like that. And so I'm just more, way more vocal about even the things that I'm experiencing, um, being more vocal about periods of depression that I've experienced where people would have never, ever guessed. And that's the point, right? Like you're not supposed to. Um, we're, we can be very good at hiding it. 
But then there's also a certain point where we need to get professional help. And so that's something else that I really appreciated about your book. It wasn't a story of like, oh, and then I prayed my way out of it or, oh, and then the power of positive thinking, you know, it was, no, I went and found professional help. (laughs) Uh, You know, maybe I did pray, but then I also went to the doctor, you know? Yeah, exactly. Like I, and the thing is like, I could not have written this book in the way that I wanted to, in the way that it ended up um, without my therapist. You know, I, you know, there was so much that I thought I had dealt with when I started writing the book. I started writing this like seven years ago. Um, But there's so much that I thought I navigated. Um, And, you know, I I started writing and then, you know, looking back on, on the early stuff I wrote, like it was just still just dripping with just so much anger and so much, you know, self-loathing and all this sort of stuff um, that I couldn't see before I really did more work, you know, on myself. And, you know, the conclusions I'm able to draw are the ways I'm able to analyze myself as the story goes on, you know, um, it's stuff I learned well after the fact. And mm-hmm. um, even though I made the right turns eventually during that time, you know, um, being able to understand it and talk about it in a way that I can share with other people was something I could only do after going to a good therapist for several years afterwards. Mm -hmm, Absolutely. I'm just so glad that it's, that you included that and we're very honest about that, you know, in the book. Um, So opening up those discussions, I think about depression, also about seeking professional help, which I know can often be taboo um, in our communities as well. So I see you as opening up a lot of these different conversations that I think are really important for all of us to to heal individually, but also collectively. Um, Another big theme in your book is, or as I see it as breaking some generational curses. Um, You talk a lot about in particular, your father, your relationship, or lack thereof with your father. And I thought that was a, a really important piece around both breaking these generational curses, kind of just in general, but then also very, very directly about ideas of masculinity as well. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and thank you for, for, you know, tuning in to that bit, because that's, that's something that I felt like, and I'm still navigating right now um is when you start digging into you know who you are what what your beliefs are what you hold dear what your fears are you know it it comes back to who brought you up mm. you know <laughs> where you <laughs> learned it from and where you didn't learn certain things from and you know for me you know i i speak a lot about my dad in in this book because you know i just felt so adrift with mm-hmm. who I could be, who I wanted to be for so much of my life. Um, and, you know, recognizing ultimately that his deficiencies, um, you know, that, that I still, some of which I still don't understand, but a lot of them, you could just look at the story of his family around him, mm-hmm. you know, for his whole life and you could figure out, you know, what had gone wrong and where he'd, you know, soaked up you know painful and 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 dangerous lessons Mm -hmm. and you know seeing that and then looking at my own life and realizing how in certain ways I soaked up those same lessons from him even though I thought I was smart enough to fight against it Mm -hmm. you know um was really was really important and then we we talk about 
you know, breaking generational curses. And what I've learned is that that road um, to breaking these generational curses is actually really lonely. Mm. And that's the scary part of, yeah. of doing that because it means, you know, setting really important boundaries for yourself with some of the people that are closest to you and saying no to some of the people that are closest to you. You know, you, you have to kind of, once you realize what you want and how, you know, these generational behaviors and, and, and ideas um, have been holding you back from that, mm -hmm. um, rejecting those ideas, you know, if, you're, if your family members aren't prepared to see it as you see it, rejecting those ideas means separating yourself from some folks who are really close to you. And I know that in, in, in our community, especially like communities of color, immigrant community, all that sort of stuff, that is particularly difficult. Mm -hmm. um, and some might even say impossible, you know, to do because you owe, you're taught to owe, you owe so much yeah. to your family. You owe your success, your life to your parents, to your siblings, to your aunts and uncles, grandparents, all that sort of stuff. And so whatever uh, stuff they pass on to you inadvertently, you know, that can't trump your love and need to mm. keep that family around and keep them proud of you. And I think that's, I think it's unfortunately a really limiting way of, of thinking about your life. And mm -hmm. if you really want to break these chains, you have to be willing to face the world maybe a little bit lonelier, which mm. is really sweet. Yeah. I mean, whoo, you said so much. <laughs> right there, you know because we think about generational curses and I know that's a very popular way to talk about things you know kind of these days and it sounds so empowering we're gonna break these generational curses we're gonna have healthy families that come from us even if we weren't raised in you know a healthy family but we're we're talking about changing family culture you know and how difficult that is we can think about how difficult it is for ourselves as an individual to change and challenge some of the beliefs that we were raised into and now consider how difficult and maybe even nearly impossible it is to change those ideas within the cultures of our family that have kept and, and, and cultivated these beliefs and that maybe served a purpose at one point, maybe a protective measure, a survival mechanism. Um, but right now, you know, our generation, I feel like we're like, oh, we want to do better and everybody's got to come along with us. <laughs> yeah, and it's just, it's so hard. That's, you, you hit it right on the head. Like a lot of these behaviors were for survival, mm -hmm. you know, because, you know, we're often, you know, well, we, it's not often, we are kind of in a world that, you know, wasn't built for us, mm -hmm. like tells us we're not good enough, you know, just by nature of what we look like when we're born, you know? And so in order to survive that, you know, all sorts of stuff uh, psychologically that we have to do to ourselves and for ourselves, for our family. Mm -hmm. But when we decide, when we're the generation that decides that we want more than that, like, just like we said earlier, we want more than just survival. Um, that, that takes a lot of work. And it's, it's so hard to explain that to people that you really, really care about. Mm -hmm. um, that the way they've survived isn't compatible with how you want to live anymore. And yeah. that is, 
yeah believe me you know it's not just my dad I have those conversations with. yeah I don't even have those conversations with him because <laughs> you know I'm on the phone but you know it's uh you know a lot of people in my family especially since the books come out mm-hmm. you know and these are really important conversations that we should be having with our families Yeah. You know, I'm thinking about the sacrifices again that we make and that we are willing to make right to get out of that survival mode. Um, But we can't force other people into making those sacrifices. Um, And like you said, you know, trying to convince somebody that the way that they have have lived and survived, that there's another way that can be very scary to give up what you know, even if what you know maybe isn't healthy or enjoyable, um, but still that familiarity and comfort um, is very difficult to, to let go of. Um, you mentioned um, kind of, or what I heard in, in, as you were talking was, you know, questioning what's normal, right? Questioning what we have come to accept. And in the book, you talk a lot about questioning those norms, particularly as it comes to uh, the world that we live in, um, you know, a white dominated world, thinking about medicine, a very white dominated field, and also questioning those those norms as well. And that was another key theme, you know, throughout your book is saying, you know, wait a minute, these spaces, they are, they weren't made for me. They're very actively hostile to me as well. And I want to know how I can change it. Right. And so you do talk a little bit about being very intentional when you were still in medicine on how can I change some of these, the the ways that I'm interacting um, with my peers or even my subordinates as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think that, you know, my, me struggling with kind of my identity, um, as far as, you know, just being Black and, you know, um, my identity as relates to, you know, acts of, you know, racism that are, you know, were foisted upon me at various times in my life. Um, that was an ongoing, you know, evolution, you know, mm-hmm. over the course of my life. And it's so funny because uh, my my editor for the book, he's this white guy and he's great, you know, but he's white. And he he was like, you know what I'd really love is, you know, every chapter we should like, we really want to know, like, what was it like being black right then? You know what I mean? And I was just like, let me tell you something. Um, Contrary to popular belief, I don't walk around every day thinking about what it's like being black right now. You know, like, (laughs) like, that's just my life. Sometimes outrageous stuff happens, but usually I'm just living and I'm navigating the normal, you know, um, injustices, you know, just just so I can get through the day. And so, yeah, you're not going to see it reflected in, in, you know, everything I write about. But Mm -hmm. so that's why I was like, you have to just, it's not hard to read between the lines of some of the stories I'm telling along the way. Mm -hmm. But then, you know, there's one chapter where I really, you know, I think we all have those moments mm-hmm. where, you know, the injustice of the world hits us so hard and so fundamentally, and it's at the right time in our lives where we can see it mm-hmm. that, you know, our whole approach shifts, our whole approach changes. And it's the culmination of like a lifetime's worth of little moments that you try your best just to keep moving through, but they affect you you know, Mm -hmm. in certain ways. And so, you know, I wasn't always, you know, uh, a kind of burn it down sort of, you know, militarized, you know, uh, black man in medicine, you know, because that's, (laughs) you know, 
not all of us are born that way. Not all of us were taught that that's the way to survive. In fact, a lot of us are taught that that's not the way to survive. Mm -hmm. And that's not the way to get into these white spaces. You know, you got to play the game and you got to learn what the game is really early. Um, And so it was really important to me to show folks that it's okay for that evolution to exist. It's okay for that evolution to take you to places that you're not necessarily proud of, Mm -hmm. you know, um, because all those moments are important um, for your evolution, you know, when it comes to the, the, the impact you want to have on the world. And I think that now, and, you know, you know, tracking back to that point in the, in the book where I kind of talk about how I want to affect, you know, the world of medicine in what small way I can as an individual, Mm -hmm. you know, I think about those tactics a lot, you know, I think about how I can bring folks up behind me and, and get them not only to see themselves and their value, but also see the matrix of how, you know, the world is rigged, mm-hmm. you know, against them. That doesn't mean that you shouldn't fight. It's just, you can't fight if you don't know the rules, mm. you know? And so, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of balancing that stuff out so that hopefully, you know, we can reach enough strength in numbers where we change things, really change things for the better, because, you know, you look around our wonderful country and, you know, everyone's, there's a lot of folks who who would not like to change the way things have worked uh, mm-hmm. or, or the advances that have happened. Um, so, yeah, I'm sorry, I kind of talked myself into it. <laughs> but uh, (laughs) we're on the journey with you tony we're on the journey yes okay that's that's great that's great but (laughs) but yeah you know what i'm saying like it's just um you know it's it's it was important to me to you know for uh to to illustrate my journey uh through that part of my identity Mm -hmm. as honestly as possible so that you know we're not all born you know, even Malcolm X wasn't born Malcolm X. Like that's the right. whole thing. You know, like he went through a lot of stuff before he got mm-hmm. to that stage. And we forget that sometimes mm-hmm. these days. And it's important to remember and to give ourselves the grace to grow in that direction as well. Mm-hmm. Yes. I mean, throughout the book, you give us, you know, so many places to latch onto as, or for me, I should say as a reader and thinking through my own identity, right? Because at the core, it is a book, as you said, like a coming of age story. So really wrestling with your place in the world, whether that is um, as a man, as a black man, as a doctor, you know, in this industry or as a member of this society, right? And so even for me, as I was reading it, I was thinking through the my own journey, right, into becoming into being aware of, you know, who I am, how the world perceives me, but also what type of impact I want to make in the world to hopefully make it, you know, better within my sphere of influence and the way that I can make positive change. So I think for for readers, there are a lot of places to latch onto and make those applications into your own life as well to understand, okay, who am I? Who do I want to be? And what are the masks that maybe I've been wearing for survival or, you know, for other reasons that I haven't really interrogated? And how is it that I want to show up in this world? I mean, I should put you on a marketing team. So that is like, is that couldn't, couldn't have said it better. That is a great, uh, great ad for folks (laughs) to go get the book. You know, you're going to feel all these things. It's going to be 
<laughs> and I tell some jokes along the way. It's oh, great. there's lots of, oh, there's so many <laughs> jokes. Um, you know, as I mentioned uh, before we got on air, you know, I was writing all these different notes in the margins. And yes, some of them were, I cannot believe this guy. Um, who does he think he is? But then yeah. so many places I'm like, LOL, I'm, you know, like all these things. I was cracking up throughout the book just for, just for a lot of different, you, you have to read the book for yourself to see. Um, but there are a lot of different, different places where I was cracking up so hard. Um, There's especially one point, I think you were talking about like uh, Southern slang and how folks talk. And I was cracking up because I was like, I know this was not a real conversation. And then I turned the page and you were like, no, that wasn't right. <laughs> people in Atlanta don't talk like that. I was like, I know that. So I was like, because I was about to not believe anything else you said <laughs> in that book. Um, but that, yeah. So all that to say, it's not all just these these deep self revelations. It is a lot of humor and a lot of places where I was like, I cannot believe this just happened um, in this book. Let's take a quick break. You're listening to Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR ninety one point seven FM. You're tuned in to WYXR ninety one point seven FM. This is Let's Grab Coffee. I'm Sana, and I'm chatting with. Dr. Anthony Chen Kui, we're talking about his book, I Can't Save You. In several places, I actually had to, to remind myself, like, is this a memoir or is this fiction? Um, and again, I think that speaks to, to your writing and to the ways that you're able to craft a narrative where I was just so into the story and you included so, you made it so vivid that I was like, wait a minute, this can't be real life. <laughs> uh, that is that is so kind that's so wonderful to hear because I I mean you know as I'm sure every author will tell you I love storytelling I loved you know this kind of part of the reason why I decided to write the book in the first place and when I decided to write it was actually you know during a point that's covered in the book um, it was that that really dark point when I was down in, in Mexico and trying to figure out my my stuff um, and I remembered during that time just how much I've always loved telling stories mm -hmm. in whatever medium. You know, I'm, I've always been an artist. It's just I, I felt I had to, I had to run away from it in order to achieve, you know, my doctor goals and that sort of thing. But, you know, I, I realized, you know, what if, you know, my contribution after going through all this traumatic training is going to be to tell a story that people will that will affect them and they'll get the reality of this world and and kind of touch them in a in a fun way um and so that's when I started writing I uh, started paying attention and you know putting it together in sort of the structure that I chose um was it was all really intentional and it just allowed me to play and mm -hmm. tell stories in a way that I knew would that I knew I would want to read um and so I'm so glad that it 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 gripped you in, in that way. Yes. I love that you said that this process allowed you to play. I think that is so important. We are so serious as adults. Oh <laughs> <laughs> Everyone's so serious. It's exhausting. 
Oh my goodness. It is. And so to have, so to hear you say like you were able to play, right. To, to you, to write in a lot of different ways. And people, when you read the book, you'll see um, there's a lot of different styles of writing in the book. Um, and so it, it makes me happy to hear that this was a process where you got to be creative and do something that you have always enjoyed, but had to kind of step away or felt that you had to step away from at, for a certain point. No, it was it was so freeing for me to write this and to to have the freedom to say, you know what, to to let someone to allow someone else to feel the way I want them to feel. Mm. You know, I have to write it in this particular style. Um, I have to do in this this particular medium to evoke the feelings that I want and to have the freedom to do that because, you know, it's my book. You know, it was, uh, <laughs> it was just wonderful. I mean, I had to fight for a lot of them. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I was just like, you know what, I trust that I've, I've garnered enough goodwill with whoever picks up this book that they will come along for this ride. If I decide to take some chances, you know, with how I tell the story narratively. Mm -hmm. Um, so I think it keeps it interesting. I think it makes it fun. I think it shows even more of my personality and, and, and how I view the world and how I like to tell stories. So. So I'm glad that you you enjoy that. Yeah. Well, speaking of play and, and creativity, what are you doing these days that's helping you continue to be able to play and, and use your creativity? Mm -hmm. So I am, so, you know, the spoiler alert, which you can, you know, find on the internet is I'm no longer practicing as a doctor. I decided mm -hmm. to leave the profession and now I am a television writer. Mm -hmm. um and entering into that world with all the uncertainty that comes along with it like it's not a guarantee of success the way going through the medical you know you know assembly line is but um I'm able to tell these stories in ways that just make me so happy mm -hmm. and are so fun um and so you know of course right now the writers are on strike Mm -hmm. And, you know, I'm in full support of this strike. I think, you know, my experiences being exploited as a medical trainee mm -hmm. put me in a very specific frame of mind to be very happy to be part of a union. Um, mm -hmm. But when, you know, we get the deal that we deserve, you know, it's back to work. And, and even now that we're on strike, I've been doing a lot of writing on my own mm -hmm. and, you know, trying to find new types of stories I want to tell, um, which has just been super fun. And, the other thing that, you know, injects fun and play is that I have a two-year-old daughter um, <laughs> and she's ridiculous and very fun. And just, you know, I've found, you know, entering into parenthood, anyone who goes, who decides to read the book, um, they'll know that entering into parenthood, for me at least, was something that I feared for a really long time uh, mm -hmm. for a lot of different reasons. And, you know, uh, the process of, of, you know, bringing another life into this world and caring for her, you know, has been not without a whole lot of challenges, most of them in my head, mm. based on how where I came from and grew up. But, you know, what I've been able to settle into is the fact that, you know, not only do I love watching her learn who she's going to be and what, seeing that little personality emerge, but, you know, seeing that emerge requires me to play just mm. to do kids stuff and to find joy in just like you know 
the fun stuff that she notices and the ways that she wants to play and, and learn about the world. And that has been such a release and so refreshing and so good for my mental health mm-hmm. um, that, you know, yeah, yeah. Most of the time it's just grunt work taking care of this, this kid who <laughs> seems intent on like killing themselves in every way possible <laughs> until they know better. But, you know, aside from the the work part, you know, the play part has been so wonderful and instrumental in my, my frame of mind these days. Ah, excellent. I love to hear that. Yes, we all need way more play in our lives. And so to foster that creativity, I think your book gives us the the opportunity to ask ourselves, you know, what is it that brought us a lot of joy, maybe at earlier points in our life? And how can I incorporate that back into my life? Maybe it's not, you know, quitting our jobs and, and starting a new career, or maybe it is. But I think your book gives us the permission to at least start to ask those questions. Yeah. And I think, yeah, that's, that's exactly right. Just think back, think back to what, what you used to love because mm-hmm. odds are you still do. And you can find some way to incorporate it into your life in some capacity and only good things can come of that. I I feel. Mm, I love it. Only good things can come of that. Well, Tony, thank you so much for being here with us today. I've had such a pleasure chatting with you. Thank you so much. Sana. This is just, a, it's been so much fun. Thank you again to Dr. Anthony Chen Kui. His book is I Can't Save You. Strong words from a doctor. There were so many more things that we could have talked about, but unfortunately we just didn't have the time. So I'll let you read the book and see what comes up for you. Ah, The book was so, so good. It gave me a lot to think about. And even though I'm not a doctor, I saw a lot of parallels into some of the journeys that Anthony went on as he was becoming, right? As he was thinking through his own identity and his place in the world. And I'm betting that you will see a lot of similarities as well. Well, thank you so much for hanging out with me today. This is Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. I'm Sana, and I'm here every Monday morning chatting with folks who are telling some very interesting stories, who have a lot of expertise in areas that I'm sure you have questions about. So make sure you come back here and hang out with me next Monday morning. Of course, if you missed any part of this conversation or maybe you want to just re-listen to some pieces, go ahead, subscribe to Let's Grab Coffee in podcast format so you never miss a conversation and share with a friend. I just want to leave you with this reminder. Each and every day, you get to decide. Yes, you. You get to decide what type of day it's going to be and how you're going to show up in this world. Over time, it is those daily choices that create your life. So what type of life are you creating? 